before we get into our lesson tonight, and I have a lot I want to say in a short time to say it, so I'm going to dispense with most of the niceties, and let's go ahead and dismiss our Sunday school kids and youth, and while those are being dismissed, everyone else, we do not collect um, a offering, a physical offering on Wednesday nights, we do on Sundays. I know some people want to give cash or a check to avoid the fees, so by all means, um, feel free to give that on Sunday, but you are also welcome to give online as well. If you have any questions about that, see Pastor Powell, Pastor Lucas, or myself, and we'll get you pointed in the right direction. With that being said, if everyone would like to join me in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading just three verses. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll recognize these are the same verses we opened with last week. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, and it says this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts. Let the word fall on good ground, that it would bring forth fruit in due season, Lord. Help us to listen with ears tentative to the Spirit, Lord. Let us cast aside all distractions at this time, Jesus. Let us lift you up and focus on your word, for it is only in you that we have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we began this series, this month, if you will, talking on the topic of evangelism. And last week, specifically, I kind of phrased it in a question of what is evangelism? Now, I'm not going to rehash the whole message, but let me just give you a couple real fast highlights of last week's message because it will go into what we're going to talk about tonight. First thing that we kind of discussed last week was this, the word evangelism or evangelist, they both derive from the same word, simply means a bringer of good news or a bearer of good tidings. Luke 2, 10 and 11, we see this take place when the angels appear before the shepherds and they say, and the angels said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The good news is Christ is our Savior. That he brought life to a dying world. The next thing we discussed was evangelism must be people-focused and not event or destination-focused. We discussed the, the Samaritan woman at the well and how that Jesus arrived at the well before the woman was even there. He had preordained a place to meet this lady in her darkest hour. We talked about how that many of the disciples, no doubt, would have probably tried to have dissuaded Jesus from going that route because it was the Samaritans. The, 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 the untouchables, the, the filthy ones, the ones that they would avoid. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria, not because of Samaria but because there was a woman that needed him. If you're looking for your mission field, if you're looking for what God is calling you to in the context of evangelism, you need look no further than your next step. 
Evangelism, from a biblical perspective, is a lifestyle, not an event. Evangelism is something you should not stop doing until you hear Jesus say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because no matter how many people you speak to, there is always more that need to hear the word of redemption. Evangelism must be focused on carrying out the mission of Christ, not bringing glory or attention to ourselves. We should worry less about the number of people that fill the pews and how many, how many lives we are pouring into. I want every seat in this church to be filled. Don't get me wrong. But if evangelism is solely focused on filling chairs, we will be a church full of dead people who begin to infect the few that are alive until they also are dead. Evangelism must first be focused on living a life pleasing to God. And as we reach others, we disciple them to grow up in the image of God. And that brings life to a church. We need life, not just bodies. Paul told Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Lastly, we wrapped up last week's message by talking about the parable of the sower. And if you only remember one thing, which I hope you remember more, but if you can only remember one thing from last week's lesson, this is what I hope you remember. There can be no harvest if there isn't first a sower. There can be no harvest if there isn't a gardener to tend to the garden, to pluck away weeds, to remove rocks, to encourage growth. Please don't dismiss your role in evangelism as second class because you're not standing on a street corner shouting. If you'll recall last week as we got toward the end, I said more than once that evangelism is only one part going out, knocking doors, talking to people. But it's three parts, spending time with people, investing in them. Helping them to work the ground that may not be ready for the full word yet. There is no evangelism without a church that tends to the garden. So tonight I want to move on to the second part of this because now we know what evangelism is. And I'm going to ask just another very simple question. Why evangelism? Why? What is its overall importance? I mean... Do we really need to be that concerned with it? Why evangelism? But before we can answer this particular question, because you see there are no doubt some who have said and will say that, well, evangelism is for someone else. I mean, I don't really need to do that. I followed Acts 2.38 and I'm saved, so, you know, that's kind of like extra toppings that I don't really have to have. It's just something extra I can do. Is that biblical? I hope without me saying another word, you know that that's not biblical. But just in case, before we can answer those questions, we have to start with a, kind of a broader question. And it's going to seem silly, but follow with me for a moment. Can you hate God and still say that you are a Christian? Now, I know everybody probably is thinking, well, that's a dumb question. Hold on. Luke 10, 27 says... 
And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Deuteronomy 6 and 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I could no doubt probably go on for the rest of the evening bringing out scriptures that very, very clearly illustrate that you cannot say that you are a Christian and yet also say that you hate God. Let's look at 1 John 2 and 9. Because while we answer that question very easily, this next question sometimes gets a little trickier. Can you say that you are a Christian and love God, but don't love your neighbor? 1 John 2 and 9. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. 1 John 2 11. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4.20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen... How can he love God whom he hath not seen? Now, we, we here in this church have talked about this topic many times. We, we've, we've discussed often about how that, uh, I, think, I think, and correct me if I get this wrong, Pastor Paul, but the phrase that he, he's used several times is, um, if you can't get along here, you're not going there, right? That, that basically saying you can't, from person to person, say you hate someone within the church, and then say that you love God and, and have life within him. But the problem is, is that sometimes hatred causes us to be a liar, not just to God, but to ourselves. You see, if, if I say something to you that you can look at and, and see demonstrably that, that it's wrong, well, you'll know that I'm not telling you the truth. But sometimes... In our flesh, we lie to ourselves so often that at some point in time, we look in the mirror and we don't see the truth anymore. We only see the lie that we've said over and over and over again. And that's a, that's a scary place to be, to not even know that you are deceiving yourself. So I'm here to tell you that you cannot say you love God but hate your brother. But the next part of the question is, how do we know? It's easy for me to say I love God. It's easy for me to say, oh, yes, I love my brother. But scriptural, biblical, true love is not words. Right? God's love toward us was not defined just because he said one day, I love you. Right? God's love is an action, and it's a continual action. See, we look at love often from the perspective of an emotion that we feel in the moment. You do something really nice for me, something that maybe no one else has ever done for me, and man, now I love you. 
And then the next time you do something that's really mean, meaner than anybody else did, and I no longer love you. But that's, that's not biblical love. That's, that's emotion. And emotions have a place. But when we're talking about eternity, we had better be very careful that we are guided by biblical love and not by emotional love. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 says this. Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 40, I love. To me, verse 40 is the linchpin upon what all of Scripture is talking about. The purpose, if you will, of what Genesis to Revelation hangs on can be found mentioned in verse 40. On these two, loving God with all that you have and loving others in the same manner. On these two, all of the commandments, the law, the prophets, that's what they hang on. Keeping God's commandment boils down to giving God everything you have. Keeping God's commandment means that every day we strive to love what God loves and hate what God hates. What does God love then in relation to evangelism? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, sometimes in Pentecost, we tend to not use the scripture a ton. And I think just, just my guess, okay, not attributing anything to anyone, my guess. Sometimes I feel like we avoid this verse because a lot of denominations will point to this one scripture to say that, look, all you have to do is love God and then you are saved. The problem is, is the way that most people, because I've done this many times, I ask people, okay, quote for me John 3.16. And this is the way I've heard, I can't even tell you, the overwhelming majority of people outside of Pentecost, even sometimes within, I say, quote for me what John 3.16 says, and they'll say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. The verse does not say, if you believe on God, you shall not perish. The verse says, if you believe on God, you should not perish. Shall and should mean two very different things. Shall means it is so. Should means it should be so, but it's dependent on what happens next. You see, John 3.16 first starts with this premise. God's love for the world is something that you or I could not do. God's love expands the, 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 the space, time, sin, Everything within our world, God's love breaches that gap. You and I could not love ourselves or others in the way that God loves. If you don't first know this, everything after you do within your walk for God is going to be frustrating. Because if what, what you determine your ministry as being successful is how much you can do, 
you're always going to be disappointed because it was God who loved the world. That while we were yet sinners, he loved us. I find it comforting to know that on my own, I could not love you or me enough to save us. Because that means it's not dependent solely on my goodness, but dependent on who God is. Now, let me, let me bring this to a next step, because some will say, well, great, that means you're saved only by, by grace then, right? You just have faith and that's it. But again, another verse, never quoted quite right in context. The scripture says, for by grace are you saved through, through, meaning that the grace, which you didn't earn, and you could never earn, is given to you through faith. What is faith? It's more than belief, right? It's, it's a belief that provides action. James says, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith through my works. Faith without works is dead. Okay, I'm setting something up here, okay? Following, we're talking about evangelism. Biblical evangelism must, first, you have to love God. But you also must love others. John 15, verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I will tell you, I have read this verse, I don't even know how many times at this point. But from time to time, I will read this passage again, and it will hit me in a way that, that makes me almost, if you will, feel ashamed. The reason I say that is because when I look at all the things I've done in my life and then I try to line that up against the love of God who became like me so that I could be like him. I understand now why the, the scripture says that everything, my righteousness, it's nothing. It's nothing. And there are times in our walk with God where we are so busy doing work. But work isn't always ministry. There are times when we fill our schedules so full, we don't even leave time for evangelism. We, we don't leave time to spend an hour with that person who's hurting, who needs God's help. And God is trying to work through you. To speak to this person. But God, I, I can't. I have practice. I have to go get this picked up for this, this event. I have to run to this store. I have to do this store. We're all guilty of it. From time to time, we live in a world that's fast-paced. Put as many things on the calendar as you can. Keep, keep yourself going. The busier you are, the more productive you are. At least that's what society would tell us. But when you step back just for a moment... And you look at what it is that God is actually trying to get us to do in evangelism. We will see it comes back to this. That God so loved that he gave. He gave all that he had. 
for a wretched sinner like me. I, I don't intend, or I didn't intend for this message to be pointed in the sense of making anyone feel guilty because that's not, that's not my aim. And if you feel that, don't worry, I felt it too. Still do. So you're not alone. But see, I, I recognize that we are humans with fickle emotions. I know that there are times when you get frustrated because you feel like you are overlooked for a position. You, you may have those times where you feel like you're not being appreciated quite like you think that you should. And please understand, I am in no way trying to downplay or to dismiss hurt. We all have hurt. We all have moments where someone has done us wrong, has said the wrong thing, where we feel like we were unjustly overlooked for whatever it is. But I need you to know this. Heaven is too good and hell is too hot. And eternity is too long for us to lose sight on what really matters. You don't need to be positioned in front of a million people to be doing God's work. And more importantly, you don't need to be positioned in front of a million people to be valued by God. I understand. I am a words of affirmation guy. I know it. Right? I like to get the good pat on the back. That's, that's my love language. But if my love language ever puts me in a position where I only feel good if I'm getting the praises from another man instead of being satisfied in the love from God, then I am in a bad position. Because at the end of the day, it's not you that's going to tell me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's not you that's going to open the pearly gates for me. Right? So the question has to be, am I pleasing to God? And if God loves me, shouldn't that be enough? Now listen, it's easy to say that from this pulpit. It's easy to say, that should just be enough for you. But look, I get it. You're still human. You still feel those emotions. They don't magically just disappear because I stand up, stand up here and say, don't feel hurt. But what I hope, what I hope is take this just as an opportunity, as a friendly reminder that you are where you are and God knows where you are and that God values you and he has a purpose for your life and you don't need anything from this world to fulfill God's purpose except for obedience and submission to his word. If you do what God tells you to do, he will put you in the places you need to be. If I could go back in time and tell myself this about 10 years ago, man, I could have saved myself a whole lot of hurt and headache. But I can't. So instead, I stand here before you to say, please, take it from someone who has more than once not heeded my own advice. Know that God loves you and values who you are. My hope tonight is, we're actually, I'm going to wrap up here shortly because I want to spend a little bit of time in prayer. Nothing super crazy, we're, we're, this can be prayer individually, but I want to tell you two stories. And these two stories for me, and I'm going to try to get through them without the stupid knot in the throat feeling, 
because they are stories, if you will, that I have had to deal with in the recent past that were reminders from God that this life is but for a moment. That sometimes when we stand in darkness, it feels like it's never going to end. But the truth is, is one day it will. And for some people, they're going to be like, man, that went way too fast. God, I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready yet. I, I still needed to do these other things, but I thought I had so much more time to get it done. I'm only 20 years old. I'm only 30, 40, 50, whatever the age is. I want you to know now is the time to be ready. But now is also the time to do everything you can to help other people be ready. Because evangelism is not about bringing people to the church so they can just belong to the body. That's important. It is important. We need one another. It is scriptural. But what I want you to see is that evangelism is you literally contending for their soul from a world that would love nothing more than to destroy them. Sometimes we look at evangelism as this thing of just knocking on the door, inviting them to church, and that's good. You need those things. But what I need you to know is that Jude says, no, 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 you don't understand. There are people with one foot almost in the flames, and you don't know that it won't be your testimony, your word of encouragement, your hand that could be the thing that they need to pull them back. That's what Jude says, right? You can pluck them from the fire. Several months ago, I was working an overnight shift in the ER, and this elderly patient came in. I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful not to give too many details, privacy reasons, but th there was an elderly patient who came in and uh, was in an, an immense amount of pain, uh, gave numerous narcotics, didn't touch it. You know someone is in, in what I like to think of as intractable pain, meaning can't be helped when their whole body is just sweaty. They, their muscles are working so hard because they're so uncomfortable. And they become, we call it diaphoretic, you're just dripping with sweat because you're working so hard because of how uncomfortable you feel. And this patient was on the bed, and, and, and she didn't speak very much English, and the patient's uh, daughter was in the room, and, and she did, and, and so I have about this much Spanish-speaking skills. Um, so I, I offered an interpreter, and they're like, no, the daughter will do the interpreting. They felt more comfortable, and I'm like, that's your choice, right? So we're in there, and I'm doing everything I can, trying to get her just to feel a little bit more comfortable. I knew I wasn't probably going to solve whatever the primary underlying issue is, but if I could just help just a little... No matter what I did, I couldn't seem to get her to that place. And so I got several washcloths out of the cabinet, and I put them in a basin with cold water. And I wrung them out, and I began to wipe her forehead and her face and her neck. And I put a cold rag across her forehead and behind her neck. And I'll never forget the daughter looking at me with tears. And I, I couldn't quite understand why she was so, why she was crying. I mean, obviously I thought, well, maybe she's just sad because of what her mom is going through. 
So time goes on, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can, and ultimately she gets admitted to the hospital, and this is right now, we're at the end, end of my shift. About, I'm about to leave the hospital. I'm going to pass this person off to day shift. But before I do, I get a room, meaning like I'm going to get her upstairs. I'm going to make sure she's where she needs to be and taken care of before I leave. And so I get her into the bed, or into the bed in the hallway. We're headed up to stairs, and the daughter stops me, and she says, thank you. And I said, I wish I could have done more. And she says, you did more than you could possibly know. And I, I came back to work the next night. And 30 minutes after she got upstairs, she died. It doesn't seem to matter how many times you experience these types of situations. It still impacts you. Let me tell you one more story. If I can make it, we'll see. My very last week in the ER, before I switched into my new job, I'd just gotten back from Jamaica, feeling nice, rested, ready to go. Came back, the next day immediately going back to night shift schedule. In the emergency room, there is one of the positions that you sometimes have to be as a nurse is what they call the triage nurse. The nurse who's sitting out front, looking at all the people coming in and having to make quick decisions on can you wait or do you need to be seen immediately? And it's fast-paced and stressful and family members yell at you all the time and, you know, be nice to ER nurses, please. They're stressed too. So it is a busy night. And there's people in the waiting room everywhere. And everyone's frustrated and, and it's, just, it's just been a crazy day. It's turned into a crazy night and everybody is just a little flustered at this point. And so I, I brought somebody back, and the waiting room was full, and it was just me as the nurse, the only nurse out front, trying to manage this room of 20 people, 20 patients, looking and trying to constantly reassess who needs to be seen, who can wait, who needs to be seen now. And I walk to the back, and all of a sudden I hear this phrase, triage red, which just means come back, we, you, there's someone you need to see now. Usually it's shorter breath, chest pain, that kind of thing. So I hear triage red lobby. Lobby is a bad word because you see triage red window one, two, three, four means they came in, they were able to sit at the chair, they're talking to the people. Triage red lobby means they are down in the lobby. They didn't even make it to the chair. And so, again, very busy. I'm a type of person, I, in the ER setting, I don't get worked up super easily. Doesn't mean I don't move fast. I only have one speed fast, but, but I don't usually get worked up. Because that doesn't help the patient and that doesn't help me. You have to take it in stride to think clearly to make sure you're doing what you need to do. So coming down the hallway and this, this young kid is being pushed down the hallway in a wheelchair screaming at the top of his lungs. Saying things that at some points were incoherent and some things that made sense. And I'm not going to lie, when you work in a profession where you see the worst of people all the time... Sometimes you get a little cynical in your mind and you immediately, you have these thoughts like, oh, great. What did this person do? Just being honest. And as that person gets closer to me, I notice this massive trail of blood. This individual had been stabbed multiple times. And the, 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 the wound that was causing him to be in the situation he was, was he severed an artery. 
And if you don't know the significance of that, arteries are the vessels that go from your heart. They are what we call high-pressure vessels because the contraction of the heart like a pump is forcing that blood forward. So when you sever that artery and there's nothing to, to affect the rate of that blood, it is now just gushing. So fortunately, I have lots and lots of experience putting on tourniquets from my previous lifetime. We get in the room, slap a tourniquet on, bleeding stops. Great. Then the face goes white. I'm white. I'm pale. But when I say white, I'm talking sheet of paper from chin to head, lips, everything, white. I look at him, eyes roll back in his head, collapses backwards. I put my hand down on his neck to feel for a pulse to see if he's lost too much blood. So I, I reach for a pulse. I don't feel a pulse. So I call out, no pulse starting CPR. I get up on top to press down on the chest. And as my hands touch him, his eyes open, head comes up off the bed, and he is screaming. First of all, I about passed out because that is not what I was expecting to happen. So I'm like standing up like this, and he jumps up screaming, and I about fell over backwards and um, would have needed the bed next to him. So he yells so loud, and the, one of the doctors who was in there jumped and said, Why are you yelling? And the patient goes, I don't know, but it's helping. And then screams again. So it was kind of a moment of a little bit of, of levity, you know, right? It's good to have a little bit of break in the craziness, right? Because the truth is, is this guy was, he was, he was, uh, let me say it like this. Five more minutes before it took to get him to us, there would have been no chance. No chance. He got several units of blood, got transferred over to the trauma center and all that good stuff. Let me tell you why I tell you this story. This is a kid and aside from the, 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 the physical distress of, of having to work with this, within this environment where you know that someone's life is literally dependent on what you do next, and then having to also be the person who has to call this kid's mother because the mother had no idea what was going on, and to tell the mother, you need to come to the emergency room. That's, that all by itself, that's heavy, right? That's, no one wants to do that. No one wants to have to, to deal with those kind of things, but... But something happened in, in, in the moment when he woke up screaming that while everyone else laughed and, and, and laughed it off, and, and I did too for a bit, but that I could not shake for the rest of that evening and, and even to this day, when his eyes opened and when he started screaming, I have never in my life seen a face that looked so terrified and afraid as this kid's face. Now, I'm not gonna like try to make this worse than it was, which I don't know that you could make it worse than it was, but he, he had almost no blood pressure because all the blood was coming out. He was there on death's door. And I kid you not when I, I say I felt quickened in my spirit later what if this young man woke up screaming in fear because he saw what awaited him? You see, evangelism is so much more 
than just saying you talk to people. Evangelism may very well be the thing that stops them from that moment of terror where they realize they had the chance but didn't take it. And I know I'm not God. I don't want to be. But I do know this. No matter how bad people are sometimes, I don't want to see them burn in hell. Let's all stand. I wonder if just for the next 10, 10 or so minutes, 10 or 15 minutes, they'll put just a little bit of music on softly in the background. If we could spend some time praying, I'm going to give you three things to pray for, and whatever else you want to pray on top of that, go for it. First, pray that God would give you a sense of conviction and a sense of importance for evangelism. Let God show you why evangelism is so important. Number two, ask God to begin to show you people that he wants you to reach out to. And number three, and this is kind of a two for one, number one, please forgive those who have hurt you because you have to pray for their soul too. Please don't let the offense that you feel towards someone else be the thing that stops you from helping them avoid the fire. Pray that God would help you forgive, but not just forgive. But pray that God would help you to repair the bridge so that the both together can move on in carrying out God's word to this world. As they play something softly, let's find a place to pray.